Father, we celebrate Christ is risen. We ask that as we continue in worship, we may understand more of what his resurrection means for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It was in a 1737 New England primer that the uh, children's bedtime prayer seems to have originated. You know the prayer. You've, you probably have prayed it yourself at some point in time. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, you know, that's, that's a, probably one of the most famous bedtime prayers. And, you know, I guess in itself it's okay, but I have to admit, when I really think, stop and think about it, it's kind of morbid. You know, do we really want to send our children off to sleep thinking, if I have my soul, if, uh, if I lay me down to sleep, pray my soul to take, if I should die before I wake? I mean, do we really want them to think about death when they're going to sleep? Well, you know, maybe in 1737 wasn't such a big deal. Maybe they were used to it. Maybe for us, you know, we live in a little more denial than that. And we, um, we don't like to think about death. But the reality is, this, this little prayer reminds us death is real. And it is something that all of us are going to face. We're all going to die. And it reminds us of that truth. We are not immortal, no matter how much we like to think we are sometimes. No matter how much we work to prevent death and to delay death, which is and rightly so, we, it's a good thing to do, eventually we're going to stop breathing and we're going to die. And, and sometimes the question that comes to our minds when we, when we come to grips with the reality of death is... What's that going to be like? What is, what is it going to be like when we die? Obviously, there are a lot of, of, there's a lot of mystery to that. But there are some things that we can know. And it's to this question that Paul addresses this section of 1 Corinthians 15. He begins anticipating the Corinthians question in verse 35. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? And I have to admit, when I read that question, it seems fairly innocuous to me. question of genuine interest. But Paul doesn't seem to interpret it like that. Because his response is, how foolish. I get the feeling his response is sort of like how we might respond to someone who says they've been abducted by aliens. And they're now back to tell us about it. And we ask them questions about it. Well, well not, you know, so what did they say to you? What do they look like? When are you going back? You know, and the people around us, we're kind of winking at them like, yeah. We're not really interested in knowing the answers to those questions because we don't really believe it happened. We're just toying with them, playing with them, maybe trying to embarrass this deluded person. It's the same kind of question that the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, ask of Jesus. 
You know, they asked Jesus about this uh, widow who's been married seven times. And what is her marital status going to be in heaven? And Jesus looks at them and says, stop being such jerks. Well, not exactly that. (laughs) That's what he wanted to say. He's nicer than that. But Paul isn't. You know, he's not. You know, the the, the NIV kind of softens it. How foolish. But most of the commentators say what he's really saying is fools. You fools. You morons. It comes from the same word. You know, he's giving it right back to them. And, you know, it reminds us that, you know, when you read the scriptures, people ask questions in a lot of ways and with a lot of intentions. And the intentions have a lot to do with the answers they get. And when people ask questions sarcastically and um, even though they know better, ask questions sort of as, yeah, really, prove that to me. They don't get very good answers. But anytime someone asks a question from genuine sincerity and a desire seeking to learn, they get answers. Probably says something to us about the way we ask questions of God and the demands we place on God and the, and the kinds of the things that we question God about. But despite their sarcasm, Paul does give them an answer. It's probably for the sake of the, the Christians who are in Corinth, that, whom he's writing this letter, I think, ultimately. These people who are in the middle and wavering, and they're being affected by these people who are saying there's no resurrection. And he says, you want to know what they're going to be like? I'll tell you. Look at your own body. Our resurrected bodies are going to be similar to that, and yet different. They're going to be different, and Similar. And, and to drive home his point, Paul gives them a lesson in agriculture. Verse 37, when you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, maybe wheat or something like that. But God gives it a body as he's determined, and each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now, if you've got a, a little plot of land and you're going to plant some vegetables in that land, if you go out and you plant some seeds of corn. I got some corn seeds here. I know it's hard to see them. If you plant some seeds of corn in the ground, you're going to be surprised and maybe a little disturbed if what comes out of the ground is Brussels sprouts. I mean, you're going to think one of two things. Either I didn't really plant, it really wasn't corn, or something's terribly wrong with this ground. And Maybe we need to have somebody come in and do some tests, radioactive material or something like that. This is not good. And even so, our transformed, resurrected bodies are not going to be something entirely different from our bodies now. They'll, they'll be of the same ilk. Now, we'd be just as concerned if we put these seeds of corn in the ground, and when the first things popped up, what came out? were seeds of corn. And that's not right either, and that would be disturbing. Because when you put corn seeds of corn in the ground, what you want to come out is an ear of corn. Something that you can, you know, husk and boil and eat. And, and that's the whole point of putting the seeds in the ground. That's the natural process of seed and plant. 
And so our resurrected bodies will be similar, but they'll be different. And they'll be different because they'll be transformed and perfected and, and will be and fully realized as God intended when he created us. Our resurrected bodies, though similar to our bodies now, will be far, far better. Sort of like an ear of corn is far better than a seed. Or like Brussels sprouts better than seeds. Or an oak better than an acorn. I mean, actually, you think about it, the purpose of a seed or an acorn is not to remain a seed or an acorn. It's to grow into what it was created to be. And that doesn't minimize the value or the importance of a seed. It simply reminds us that they're incomplete if they remain as they are. But it doesn't mean they aren't good. I guess it's one of the reasons why we... Genesis 1 and 2 are so important to understanding a lot of what Paul says in this chapter. He, he alludes to the creation story on a number of occasions here. And when you look back at, at Genesis 1, and you find that when God completes each day of creation, he looks at what he's made and he says, this is good. And on the sixth day, he creates the animals of the earth and he looks at them and says, this is good. And then he creates human beings. And he looks at them and he says, this is very good. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he modifies that verb. Why would God, having gone to all the trouble he did to create these intricate, amazing bodies of ours, just throw them away and say, well, let's just start over? as though implying they weren't that good to begin with. I can do better than that. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we are not Platonists or dualists. We don't believe that spirit is good and matter is evil, which would mean that then the point of the resurrection is to set us free from these prison houses that we call bodies. And we understand the temptation to think like that. We struggle with our bodies. We struggle with self-esteem, which is often related to our bodies in one way or another. We can all think of things about ourselves that we wish were different. We'd like to be better looking or smarter, or more muscular, taller, or shorter. And of course, we think about our bodies and we see them slowing down as we face injury or disease or age. Of course, our bodies are the only context that we have to understand sin. So we get into our heads that we're only going to be finally free and finally spiritual if we can be free of these bodies that cause our sin. And you add to that suffering and pain and persecution and all the atrocities that we live with in this world. No wonder we're tempted to think that heaven is being free of these bodies. What we endure with our bodies doesn't make them bad. It just means that they are infected and they're incomplete. At the resurrection, God's not going to scrap what he's created, what he's called very good, as though it's really not all that good, as though he made a mistake. He's going to bring his creation to fulfillment through the transformation of the Spirit and in the resurrection, creation's not abandoned. It's taken to new heights. And that's why in verses 40 and 41, Paul talks about the splendor of our created bodies. 
our earthly body and our, and our resurrected body. They're all glorious creations of God with the splendor of God's creation. And yes, we're going to possess bodies that are complete and free from the infection of sin. We'll have transformed bodies that will have new eternal properties. They'll be greater than anything we can ever imagine. There'll be bodies like Christ, he says in verses 48 and 49. Christ's resurrected body was such that he could eat and drink and he could talk with people and they could recognize him and he could be touched. But it was different. He could walk through doors. It wasn't limited by time and space anymore. And our resurrected bodies will be similar and different like seeds of corn to an ear of corn. When you begin to think that through, one of the questions that sometimes arises is, what about, what about bodies that really aren't bodies anymore? Maybe they were wondering about the, maybe what 35, verse 35 is all about. Maybe that's what they're asking. How can people possibly rise when their bodies have completely rotted away? The case for many of God's people through the ages and now in our day, including Paul. And, of course, that question assumes that, that God is limited to a fully intact body in order to raise our bodies. And he's not limited. I was thinking about this, and the image of Ezekiel 37 came to my mind. In this chapter, the Lord leads Ezekiel out to this valley that's filled with bones. Dry, withered, lifeless bones. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live again? And Ezekiel says, I don't know. Only you can know, Lord. doesn't look to me like they're going to live again. And Ezekiel watches as, as the Lord puts those, begins to put those bones together and puts tendons on those bones and flesh on those bones and wraps skin around those bones. And then he breathes life into those bones. They all stand up and they become a vast army of Israel. God isn't limited. The litany of the grave says, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. N.T. Wright remarks about that and says, as we see in the original creation story, God can do some pretty marvelous things with dust. It's a, much of it's a mystery. There's a lot we don't know. We do know that this new heavenly body will be far more glorious than any of us could ever dream or imagine. And we will not be Christ, but we will be like Christ. And the whole point of this is what Paul's been arguing from the beginning of this chapter, that if, we, if our bodies are not raised, then Christ's body is not raised. And if Christ's body is not raised, then everything we believe, the foundation of all that we are as Christians, is a sham and a lie. And we are the fools. But we live with bodies that are in pain. Let me take a second and pray. I don't know what the siren's about, but let's pray.
the people involved. Father, you know about the need that the, that the siren is signaling. And we pray that uh, you will meet whatever need this is about. We pray for your grace upon whatever situation this may be and help the people involved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, our our bodies have a problem and we do everything we can to try to prevent the problem, to cure the problem. And sometimes we make some progress, but when we come back to, we, we live in bodies that Paul says are perishable. They're weak and he says they're dishonored. They're natural. And the end result of these bodies in which we live is death. Death is a great threat that our enemy holds against us. But our, actually our problems more than death, as painful as that is. You've had the experience of, of reading something dozens of times and all of a sudden, I don't know, the 50th time, the 250th time, something strikes you you've never seen before. That happened to me last week as I was reading through this passage and I came to verse 56. And all of a sudden, it didn't make sense to me. In verse 56, Paul writes, the sting of death is sin. And for the first time, I thought about that and, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. Shouldn't he have said the sting of sin is death? I mean, I would have expected Paul to say that death is what makes sin hurt us. Death is the ultimate threat of sin. It's not that that sin is what makes death hurt us. And I've always pictured death being just a reality only because of sin. That we sin and therefore death. And that's certainly true, but Paul seems to turn that a bit. I think he wants his readers, he wants us to understand that death is bad enough on its own. Death is a terrible thing that we have to endure. Death is not, as some people might tell us, a friend that comes to rescue us from these evil bodies in which our spirit is housed. Death is our enemy. What really makes death so deadly is not that someday we're going to stop breathing and leave this world. The real problem with death is that because of sin, when we die, we're separated from God. Because of sin, when we die, we are eternally dead. Death isn't what separates us from God. Sin is. Jesus died. That didn't separate him from the Father. Taking the sins of the world upon himself is what separated him from the Father. And granted, the impending death that we will all face is the result of sin. But the sting of death is the second death of eternity caused by sin. We're all going to die in these earthly bodies. Jesus does not eliminate that. Paul's concern is that our eternal death will separate us from God. And that's caused by sin. It's an argument that Paul makes sort of in an odd way because the second half of verse 56 says, the power of sin is the law. And that seems odd because God is the originator of the law. I think Paul's point is that once you know God's desire for you, the law of God gives sin its power because now we know what God's expectations are. And if we don't do them, 
we're in disobedience and we sin. Adam and Eve's one law was not to eat the fruit. And they broke that law. And that law became the definition of their sin. Now, we might be tempted to think, okay, well, if that's the case, then don't tell me anything about the law. I don't want to know. And if I don't know, I can't be held responsible, right? Well, except that God's law is built into his creation. There's there's not a, a person or a culture in this world that doesn't have some understanding of right and wrong. And there's not a person or a culture in this world where people, every person, breaks that law of right and wrong. And it leads to the eternal death of every person. And every person breaks the law. And one way or another, that law-breaking brings fear to us about what lies ahead. Because we know the power of sin and death is too much for us. We know that we can't fight against it. And that brings us to the last part of this chapter. Paul describes our bodies in verse 53 as imperishable and more immortal. And he says that death that is always a threat to us now is not going to be a threat to us then. It's not because we've shed off this body and the matter that holds us back, but because Christ who was dead is now alive. He's conquered death. He's swallowed up death. And it no longer has power over us. Christ's resurrection doesn't eliminate the threat of eternal death. There are people who reject Christ. There are people who turn away from Christ, and they will unfortunately experience the reality of eternal death. We're not universalists. But if the threat of eternal death is no longer possible for anyone, then everything Paul declares here is sort of a mirage. It's like a horse that wins the Kentucky Derby only because there aren't any other horses running. I mean, it's a victory, but not much of one. You could always argue, well, if there was another horse in the race, they might have lost. A real victory is when the best horses run as best they can and your horse still wins. That's victory. That is power over death. That is death being swallowed up by the risen Christ. And the real expression of God's power over death is that we could be susceptible to eternal death, but we're not because God in Christ has defeated it, swallowed it whole. No wonder Paul writes with such confidence and hope and optimism and even a little bit of a swagger. If you ask me, you read verse 55, where he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? If you ask me, that comes pretty close to trash talking. Paul says, Okay, death, you know. You've been able to do all this stuff. You've said all the great things that you're going to do in terms of turning people away from God, convincing people that they aren't going to be able to do what they want to do. You've had this power over them, and you've been bragging about it a long time. But you know what? Christ has been raised. So let's hear you now. Come on. Let's hear it now. Where's your power now? Where's your sting now? 
I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message. He says, who got the last word, O death? Who's afraid of you now, O death? And you're nothing but silence because death is swallowed up in victory. And that's not just a reason to rejoice someday. That's a reason to rejoice now. And I know sometimes it's hard because we look around at the world and we see so much injustice and we see so many people who have the power and the wealth and the influence running everything and we become so discouraged that it's ever going to be any different. But this is the point where our hope intersects with the 21st century. Where the resurrection of Christ becomes real for us now Because what looks like they have all the power is really they don't have the last word at all. And if we live in the promise of Christ's victory on that day, when the trumpet sounds and we will be changed, we can live with that same victory now. Our enemy has thrown his most lethal punch and Christ has taken it. And he's won. And those of us who are in Christ win too. A month or so ago during the college basketball tournament, I noticed that some of the sports networks were rebroadcasting games, the most exciting games from some of the past tournaments. And I happened one night upon the 1987 championship game in which Indiana defeated Syracuse. And I know... For some of you, that was a low point. If you're Syracuse fans, for me, it was Apex because I'm an Indiana fan. I was glad to see that a few years ago, Syracuse won. They've had some great teams, and that game was so close. It was one of the most exciting championships ever. But watching that reminded me of the night that I watched that live, but it also reminded me of, of all the games my dad and I watched together as I was growing up. And it reminded me of, I think, something I've shared with you a few years ago, of of a game that took place in the 75-76 season of Indiana University basketball. They were a phenomenal team that year, number one in the nation, undefeated. And they were pretty much steamrolling everybody they played. But then they had a game against the University of Kentucky, one of their arch rivals. Always, always a hard-fought game. And um, they were playing this game. I'm pretty sure they were playing it in Lexington. And uh, there, was a, there was a television station, uh, one, of the, one of the Evansville television stations. We live right across the river from Kentucky. And this station was in Kentucky. And they broadcast a lot of Kentucky games, but usually tape delayed. And so this was one of those times. You know, you didn't have games on 24 hours a day. We didn't have ESPN in the 70s, so you watched the few games that you got. And so my dad and I planned, and we, after the, the news that night, we stayed up and watched the broadcast of the Indiana-Kentucky basketball game. And it was a great game. I mean, it was close all the way. I mean, I'm literally biting my nails, you know, jumping up and down at every play, moaning at every what I thought bad call or every mistake that Indiana made, back and forth all the way through the game. I mean, I was so nervous watching this game. I mean, their undefeated season was on the line. What was so amazing to me, I remember thinking that my dad was sitting over in the chair, usually very demonstrative too when we watched games together, but actually fairly calm. 
And I remember thinking, I guess I've got to carry the anxiety and the worry and the fear for all of us today. Okay, fine. And I did. And the final horn sounded and Indiana won. And, you know, I I just, I was exhausted from all of the energy I expended watching that game and living every, every trip up and down the court. It was then that my dad revealed to me that earlier in the day he'd been talking to someone who had inadvertently told him the score of the game. I mean, he could sit there calmly through all of it because he knew how it was going to turn out. And you know, you and I live in a world that looks like we don't know how things are going to turn out. And we worry and we fret. And we feel despair and hopelessness even sometimes. And in those moments, we need to remember that we already know who wins. We already know how things are going to turn out. And it ought to change everything about how we live even now. Because we know Christ has been raised from the dead. And that we who are in Christ will be raised too. And so today, let's declare with the saints through the ages, living and dead. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. May God give us grace to live in that victory, even today. Amen.